You think I'm licked? You all think I'm licked? Well, I'm not licked. And I'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. That's the famous scene from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the classic 1939 film in which Jimmy Stewart plays a senator who stands up to fraud and corruption by deploying one of the archaic rules of the chamber, the filibuster. In the movie version, Stewart, as the young, naive Senator Jefferson Smith, speaks for hours on end, calling out the shady actions of his colleagues until he drops from exhaustion. In fact, as Adam Gentleson writes in his new book, Kill Switch, the actual filibuster has almost never been used for such heroic purposes, and these days nobody drops from exhaustion. Instead, it's been a vehicle used by diehard conservatives to block civil rights and other progressive legislation, and under current rules can be triggered with a simple email registering an objection. Nobody actually has to say anything. Is it time to kill the filibuster once and for all? We'll talk to Gentleson about the prospects for doing so in the new Senate, and as the Senate prepares for another impeachment trial of now ex-President Donald Trump, we'll also talk to former National Security Advisor John Bolton, the missing witness in the first Trump impeachment trial on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So Mr. Smith goes to Washington has to be on anybody's short list of the best films ever made about our nation's capital and American politics. So it was really disillusioning to read Adam Gentleson's uh, book, Kill Switch, to learn, as I think we probably already long suspected, filibusters never actually work that way. The closest we've gotten these days to anything like uh, Jimmy Stewart in the film is uh, Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham a few years ago. Complete showboating, by the way. But it is a timely topic to discuss whether the filibuster still has a meaningful role to play uh, in the United States Senate. Uh, well, there's been a lot of mythologizing about our political institutions uh, for a long time. And, you know, for good reason, a lot of those myths are getting busted and getting scrutiny. I mean, the ele- a couple of examples, you know, we've talked a fair amount about the Electoral College uh, on this podcast and uh, this idea that, you know, this has been something that uh, was developed by the founding fathers and is a core, you know, principle of our of our system, not true at all. And it's the same thing with, with the, uh, the legislative filibuster. I think there are a lot of people out there who have all sorts of misconceptions about the filibuster and think that it's, uh, you know, got some, you know, noble past. And once again, you know, it was 100 years after the founding fathers were no longer around that the filibuster really arrived on the scene. So, uh, but, you know, it has been colorful. Uh, I, I do uh, remember Actually, this one I looked up. I don't know, Iskov, if you remember what the, the last actual, like, real filibuster was. Um, uh, goes, Rand, Rand Paul, right? Well, no? yes, but I think in the sense that, that you actually still had to get up there and talk. I don't know. Well, I, wasn't I remember, Paul blocking the confirmation of Brennan? Yeah, on drones, was, because of drones. Hey, by the way, yeah. a, uh, a skullduggery guest, John Brennan, the former CIA director, but he wanted like a commitment that uh, drones would not be used to kill American citizens inside the United States. We had already killed one outside the United States. But Did he get that? That's another story. I, that? I think uh, uh, Holder was the AG, you know, put out some statements saying the obvious, we don't kill well, American I, there, citizens. There, the, 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 so it's two things. There was one in uh, 1992 when George H.W. Bush was president. It was 
Al D'Amato, Senator Pothole from New York. Okay. Uh, and it was a 13-hour filibuster in which, among other things, he crooned south of the border. But the other little— um, We could have played that at the top instead of the Mr. Smith goes to yeah, Washington. Right. The, but the other out. stat is the longest filibuster in history, which still hasn't been broken. That was Strom Thurmond in 1957 filibustering a civil right. rights law, and, and it was— uh, I think right. uh, 24 hours and 18 minutes. In the end, the legislation was passed anyway. But so it's you know, incredibly wimpy that they don't even have to talk these days. Not you only that, they don't have to talk. Send and, an email. And, and right. you know, who, the person who objects to the legislation being brought to the floor without 60 votes, you don't even know who that person is. I mean, the whole thing is the whole thing is that is outrageous, the, by the yeah. way, that you don't even yeah. know who's objecting. But look, before yeah. we get to that, uh, we should just say something about the other topic of Senate business at the moment, which we'll be talking about uh, with um, Ambassador John Bolton in a moment. And that is the impeachment trial of Trump. Of course, um, I want to say, you know, we had a number of podcasts uh, in the last couple of weeks in which we talked to members of the House about their commitment to impeaching Trump because of his truly outrageous conduct on January 6th and in the weeks that ran up to it. But when I pressed them on, look, if you can't get 67 votes in the Senate, is it really worth going through this? Because you run the risk of... Headlines saying, once again, Trump acquitted. And as you recall, Jamie Raskin, Tom Malinowski, they all pushed back on that. They said, no, that's that'll never happen. This is something we must do. And so then the day after 45 Republican senators vote that the whole thing is unconstitutional because Trump is out of office, making it virtually impossible to get to 67 to convict him. What's the headline in the New York Times? Rallying against trial, GOP senators signal a second Trump acquittal. There it is, Trump acquittal already being used in the headlines of the New York Times and no doubt other places. And God, uh, you know, that's the last headline I want to be reading yeah. these days. And, and, and I think we're going to hear from from John Bolton that not only are, will Democrats not likely not achieve their objective here, but it could be counterproductive and, and dangerous because, you know, Donald Trump is going to get everything he wants out of this, which is more attention and then an ability to declare victory on behalf of his MAGA followers. And right. I don't know if that's good. You know, the other side of the argument is accountability is important. Right. The question is, what is true accountability? How do you achieve it? Excellent question. And I should say none of this is to minimize in the least the fact that Donald Trump incited a mob that killed five people, including a police officer and threatened the lives of members of Congress. So that said, let's get to it. We now have with us Ambassador John Bolton, the former national security advisor to President Trump, one of the former national security advisors, also the author of The Room Where It Happened. Ambassador, welcome back to Skullduggery. Well, glad to be back with you. I should say I am the longest serving former Trump. Okay, Jack, we will, we will give you that. <laughs> Oh, look, it was just about a year ago we were going through uh, the first impeachment of Donald Trump. You were, of course, a crucial non-witness in that case. Uh, you later said uh, that the Democrats who brought it were guilty of impeachment malpractice because they were too narrowly focused on Ukraine uh, rather than some of uh, the president's other transgressions. Here we are a year later on the eve of another impeachment trial. Your thoughts? Well, malpractice must be uh, in the water in the House uh, office buildings is all I can say, because I think, I think this impeachment is also flawed, although for somewhat uh, different reasons. I think once again, it was rushed through on essentially a partisan uh, line basis. Uh, uh, 10 Republicans did vote to impeach the president. That's not insignificant. 
But the fact is that there's substantial doubt constitutionally whether the trial of a former president or any former officer of the United States can be held after that person has left the job uh, for which they were being impeached. I think Trump will litigate that question. He'll certainly try to. Whether he gets anywhere or not, I don't know. But we just had a vote in the Senate where 45 Republicans essentially said they didn't think the Constitution permitted the trial to go forward. Now, it will go forward. But I think the question really for the country is, does this hurt Donald Trump, if that's what the objective is, or does it hurt the country more? I have nothing good to say about Trump's performance. I'm not saying give the guy a break. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying it's time to turn the page. I'm saying it's fair and it's prudential, given that this is a political proceeding, not a judicial proceeding, to ask whether on net the country benefits. And my view is, given the fact that Trump is no longer in office and therefore can't be removed from office, that the disqualification from future office, which is the only penalty left, really is not worth what we're about to go through. Now, we're going to go through it anyway, so it's a hypothetical. But uh, honestly, we've now had, or we're getting ready to have, 50% of all the impeachment trials in our country's history in the last 12 months. This is not a good thing. But that said, Ambassador, look, there are those who say yes to everything you're saying, but Trump's conduct here was so appalling, not just in the incitement in the speech that he gave on January 6th, but the whole drawn out process of making these bogus claims of election fraud and whipping people up thinking that our democratic elections were not valid was such a transgression that it cannot go unpunished. To that, you say what? Well, I think the issue here is uh, of, of accountability really goes to, to basic democratic theory. I don't have anything good to say about any of Trump's conduct for, for long periods of time, and certainly for not anything he did or said after November the 3rd. But accountability at the hands of other politicians, I find terribly unsatisfying because a bunch of politicians say Donald Trump's a bad guy. We're supposed to take notice of that. Uh, the fact is the population of the United States on November the 3rd said we've had enough of Donald Trump. That's the most compelling punishment of all. And if the idea here is to remove the stain of Trump's conduct from the national consciousness, the way to do that is not to throw accelerant on the fire by going through a lengthy trial and indeed the whole impeachment process. The way to punish Trump the most, the way to hurt him where it hurts him the most is ignore it and let it dissipate and get it out of the body politic. That's what I want to do. I don't want to make it worse. I want to make it better. So I, I, let me follow up on that, Ambassador. And I thought that was an interesting point that you made in your op-ed piece. I think it was in the National Review. How do you achieve that? I mean, you know, this first of all, this is someone who 75 million Americans did vote for him. He may not have the same megaphone that he's had as president, and we'll see what happens with Twitter and the social media platforms. But you talk in your piece about organizing a societal shunning of Trump. Elaborate on that. What does that really mean? And is that possible? I mean, how do you do that? Well, you know, I think- Let me just add one thing. And with the news today, that House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, flew down to Mar-a-Lago to meet with him. Look, I, I have nothing good to say about that meeting either. I, w I would not have done it. I, I cannot understand it. I wish it hadn't happened. But I think one way you shun Trump is for the media to stop covering him. He's not president anymore. He's not doing anything that's newsworthy, except when Kevin McCarthy goes to visiting. Stop talking about Donald Trump. Do you think the news media are capable of that? I, I don't know. But if you want to shun Trump, don't put him on television anymore. Look, the impeachment process is a political process. We acknowledge that. I think uh, uh, that's what the framers intended. I don't think Trump should be immune from potential judicial prosecution for any of his actions, that whether they amount to interference in the election, whether they amount to incitement to riot, uh, or whatever civil damages may accrue as an accomplice in something that led to the deaths of five people. He's got a lot of potential legal liability, but I'd rather have it done through the judicial system, which is non-political, hopefully, 
rather than through this, this process of impeachment. Ultimately, we believe in democracy, not in the judgment of our political leaders. We believe in the judgment of the people. And the best way, the best way to measure that is to try and reduce Trump's influence. Do you think that there are credible federal criminal case against Trump for any of this conduct? Well, I think as they go through the investigation and indictment of what now look to be several hundred people, that questions about whether Trump or Trump aides in any way participated in the planning for what happened on Capitol Hill, whether he gave it approval, implicit or, or explicit, all of this remains to be seen. You know, Trump has been an expert in his business career and his political career of committing crimes, frankly, in plain view, and then saying, I did it and it wasn't a crime, like releasing his transcript of the call with President Zelensky of Ukraine. You know, you can extort somebody in one of two ways. You can put a knife at their throat and say, pay me or else. Or you can say, nice story you got here. Really be a shame if something happened to it. I can help you out on that. It's the second way that Trump commits his offenses. You just need a prosecutor with a little bit of ingenuity. Do you regret having worked for the guy? No, I don't. I, I Look, I, uh, uh, I understood when I took the job, uh, I thought I did anyway, what uh, Trump was like. I did think that the weight of the responsibility of the presidency would affect how he treated national security matters. My book is a long story of how I was wrong about that. But, you know, the question that I ask, and it's, uh, it's subject to the criticism of uh, being egotistical, but I think I and others would raise the question, would you have preferred that we not serve and that our uh, those who stood in force uh, dragged their knuckles and drooled from the corners of their mouth? I mean, we did, a lot of us, the best we could under difficult circumstances, not to enable Donald Trump, but for what we thought was in the best interest of the country. And I don't regret that at all. Well, we're going to take you up now on your suggestion that we not only talk about Donald Trump. Hooray! Uh, <laughs> uh, let's, a little let's, bit. <laughs> let's move to some uh, foreign policy issues and to the current administration. You wrote another op-ed piece on China. You, you must be one of the most prolific op-ed writers this country has ever had. And uh, you, you make the point that here is an opportunity for the new administration to be strategic when it comes to China, something that Donald Trump was not in the slightest. And I think you had an opportunity to see or at least read about Tony Blinken's confirmation hearing. There was a lot of tough rhetoric about China. Hard to see in some ways what the differences are between the Biden policy right now and, and the Trump's sort of Trump's overarching posture toward China. Are you hopeful at all that the Biden administration will pursue a tough China strategy right now? Well, I think it's possible that they will be a lot tougher than the Obama administration, which I thought was pretty limp when it came to China. I think Biden has a short moment to work on that strategy. And, and I think that if he looks at where the views of the American public are, they are a lot harder today in January of 2021 than they were in January 2020 because of the coronavirus. And I think this shift is true across Western Europe, not just because of China's conduct in concealing the origins of the coronavirus and the rest of it, but because there's a greater awareness of, uh, of China's other transgressions, its theft of intellectual property, its aggression in cyberspace, and a whole range of other activities. So if Biden is alert to this and responsive to this change in mood. He could have a tougher China policy, maybe not as tough as I'd like, but better than Trump's, which was tough because it was politically advantageous for him in uh, 2020. Now, the big unknown here was also supplied by John Kerry, former Secretary of State, in his press briefing the other day when he said that climate change had to be protected against all the rest of our concerns about China policy. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by that. Under one interpretation, it could be you can have a very hardline policy on China on everything but climate change. But I'll guarantee you that the Chinese response is going to be, you care about climate change, you need to give us space on X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank. So this is a clash of tectonic proportions, possibly, within the Obama administration. Is it more important to prevent China from annexing the South China Sea or threatening Taiwan, or is it climate change? 
What's your view? I would much rather be concerned with uh, the South China Sea and Taiwan and the border with India. Look, China's policy on climate change is stated in its commitments in the Paris Accords, which we've now rejoined, is basically we'll start worrying about it in 2035. And that, by the way, is what's wrong with the Paris Climate Accords. They just took a couple, 100 plus national policies, lined them up and said everybody agrees to follow their national policy. This is not a way of affecting climate change. I'm curious, if you'd been in the in the Senate, would you have voted to confirm Blinken? Yes, I would have. And, and that's because my view of the of the constitutional responsibility of the Senate is that in executive branch appointments, I'm leaving judicial appointments aside here, I think the Senate's role is very limited. Uh, I think it's gotten exceedingly overbroad in the past three or four decades. I've experienced a little bit of it myself. I think you have to have demonstrated incompetence of some form or views that are so extreme that they're nowhere near the mainstream. And, and this, this battle to make every presidential appointment a close Senate vote, I think, is a huge misreading of the Constitution. One big pivot point in Biden foreign policy is going to be in the Mideast. Now, we know your views about the Iran deal. But I also want to ask you about Saudi Arabia, because Biden has said consistently intends to hold the Saudis accountable for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and get the U.S. out of the war in Yemen. Just yesterday, they froze arms sales to both the Saudis for precision guided missiles and the UAE for fighter aircraft. Now, you resisted going after the Saudis over the Khashoggi murder or the war in Yemen. Do you think the Biden people are right to do this now? Or do you have um, qualms about the approach they're taking? Look, I I think you've got to be realistic. Uh, Let's start with Khashoggi. As Vladimir Putin said to me personally in his conference room in the Kremlin, you don't want to sell the Saudis arms, we'll sell them arms. That's a reality. Franklin Roosevelt once said of Anastasio Somoza, a Central American dictator. He may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. I'm with Roosevelt on this. Uh, I don't know where the rest of you all are, but that's, that's just the way it goes. In terms of Yemen, you know, people act like the Saudis started the war in Yemen. The Saudis are purely responsible for humanitarian tragedies there. It's a terrible situation. The culprit is Iran. Why is Iran aiding the Houthi rebels? What, what is their strategic interest? in an internal Yemeni conflict, it's to get into the backyard of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and the other Gulf Arab states. If you're, if you're an Arab sitting on that peninsula, you see Iran across the Gulf on one hand, and now they're trying to attack you from Yemen behind. That's why there's a war in Yemen, and the idea that the Saudis are somehow the more culpable party is simply inaccurate. Are you saying that MBS is your SOB? No, I'm saying he's the U.S.'s SOB. That's that's the way this is structured here. And uh, if somebody's got a different idea of how to deal with Saudi Arabia, then then let's hear it. I, I just think that virtue signaling may work in politics. It doesn't work in international affairs. Let's take an analogy, the jailing of Alexei Navalny in Russia. The administration has protested, it's so have I. What steps are they now going to take after they've beaten their breast about the arrest of Navalny. If you want to talk about morality and human rights, you've got to be prepared to follow up. I just have one very quick follow-up on Iran. We know that you you just said that uh, you believe constitutionally the president should get deference and executive appointments. One appointment on Iran, which is looming and seems to be a proxy fight, represent a kind of a proxy fight over Iran policy, is Rob Malley to be the uh, administration's special envoy uh, for Iran. What do you think of that potential appointment? You know, I, I didn't even know who Rob Malley was until this controversy arose. I don't think it's a confirmable appointment, but I it's think not. where you fight on these issues is over policy and not over the confirmation. Look, if they make the mistake of really trying to go back into the Iran nuclear deal, uh, I think it's a huge mistake from the U.S.'s strategic point of view, and I think it's an enormous mistake from a domestic political point of view. So if they're going to do it, bring it on. All right. Well, let's ask a Russia question before we go, because 
look, we have protests in the streets, uh, you know, the poisoning of Navalny. How would you approach Putin and the Russians right now? Do they need to be held accountable for that, for their interference in the election, for solar winds, the massive espionage attack on our cyber infrastructure? Look, I, I said back in 2016, when there were reports about the Russian attempts to interfere in the election, that 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 was an act of war against the Constitution. I believed it then and I believe it now. I think Putin has succeeded in playing a weak hand very well. I think he's got benefit from the Europeans, for example, who don't want to shut down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But I think there's more pressure that we can apply on him. I think that the regime in Russia is weaker than people think. I think the demonstrations around the country when Navalny returned and was arrested were some indication of that. I think this is where you keep the pressure on and see if more doesn't happen. Sanctions? More sure, sanctions? absolutely. And, and by the way, I wouldn't have extended New START for five years. That's not how you get tough on the Russians. So who would you sanction and for which of the many Russian transgressions we've talked about here? Well, I think there's a long list of them. There are some statutory sanctions you can apply, but there are other things to do that uh, can reduce the economic interaction overall between the U.S. and Russia. And in the true spirit of the Biden administration of working with allies, let's go to the Europeans and say, hey, you know this NATO thing here? What, what does this defend you against? It defends you against the Russians. So by the way, why do you still have Nord Stream 2? Why are you still trading with the Russians? Why are you still doing all these things? And you know, then we'll see how strongly they feel about Alexei Navalny's imprisonment. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate having your insights on skullduggery and, uh, and hope to return uh, as the uh, Biden administration uh, commits its own uh, actions that you may want to comment on. I, I am confident there will be a lot to talk about. <laughs> okay. Thanks, right. a, Thanks lot. a lot. We really Ambassador. appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. We've now got with us Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Adam is the former deputy chief of staff to uh, then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Adam, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I got to say, you know, I always knew you as a uh, as a Senate aide political operative so I was really surprised when I picked up the book and there's this really scholarly, learned account of the history of the Senate, not uh, what I was expecting, uh, which I guess only goes to show you can never tell a book by its author. But um, <laughs> And uh, Robert Caro better uh, watch out, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That, I mean, that means a lot coming from you, Mike. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, so uh, tell us a little, because it is both political, but also scholarly, your choice to write the book in that way? Well, I think it's because I was very dissatisfied with the kind of answers that you get when you're working in the Senate for why it is the way it is when you start asking around. You know, the one of the central episodes I recount in the book is the failure of the Manchin-Toomey background checks bill in 2013. And that was sort of pivotal for me because, you know, you start asking, well, we, why do we need 60 votes? You know, why, why wasn't 55 votes that was a bipartisan majority of Republicans and Democrats enough to pass this bipartisan amendment to this? Yeah, tell that story because that's how the book opens. And it's, it's really pretty dramatic and, you know, um, um, heart-tugging in a way. Well, you know, yeah. So the, the scene that opens the book is a day in, in April of 2013 when I was standing in Senator Reid's office it was just after the final vote on the Manchin-Toomey background checks bill. Folks remember this was a bill to uh, implement universal background checks that came to the floor in the wake of the Newtown massacre in, in Newtown, Connecticut. The massacre was in December of 2012. The bill came to the floor in April of 2013. And, you know, this was an incredibly reasonable step to take. Many would argue it was not nearly enough. 
to combat gun violence. I, I would certainly argue that, but but it was nonetheless at least something. And it was supported by 55 senators, Republicans and Democrats. The amendment itself was sponsored by Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, two very different senators, one Democrat, one Republican. It just, you know, everything you learn about how the government is supposed to work as a young staffer, this bill seemed to embody it. It, it seemed to have everything you were supposed to have to make something work in our system. And it failed because it couldn't clear this 60 vote threshold in the Senate that has come to be associated with the filibuster. And the book sort of recounts the history of, of how that happened because it, it, is a, it is sort of an artificial growth um, that has occurred in the, in the last couple of decades. But this day was just an absolutely gutting day. And there was a, right after the vote, we had this unscheduled meeting with one of the parents of one of the children who was shot in Newtown. Um, the parent's name was Neil Heslin. His son was Jesse. And Neil was a Republican from Connecticut, conservative, still is. And he came into Reed's office after the vote and was just devastated. And he's a big guy. I mean, he looks like a built like a linebacker, broad shoulders. And I was sitting behind him. He was sitting in a chair facing Senator Reed, standing behind him. And there was just a silence that hung in the room because there was just really nothing to say. Neil had asked his government to do a very reasonable thing in response to the death of his son. And his government had utterly failed him. And it was just a devastating moment. There was nothing to say. We just sort of, you know, sat there in, in silence. Um, I couldn't tell if Neil was, you know, about to cry, but it sort of seemed to me like he was. I was standing behind him, so I couldn't see exactly, but that's how it felt. And there just were no good answers. You know, I mean, Neil and the other parents sort of looked to us and the staffers to sort of say, what what happened? What We, we did what we thought we were supposed to do as citizens. And and how, how did we arrive here? How did the government let us down like this? And we just didn't have any good answers. And I think that it was, it was the, the, the gut punch feeling I had that day that I think I'm still not over that, that and our inability to provide anything approaching reasonable answers to these parents that led me to, to write this book. And I think the reason I wanted to, to do it in a serious way is that the, the defenders of the Senate wrap themselves in history and tradition and institutionalism. And they make it, they, they seem inaccessible, they seem unassailable. And once I started to dig into the history of this institution and the reason that things are the way they are, most of it turns out to be bullshit. Yeah, I want, let, let me, yeah, Adam, let me, let me just, um, I want you to step back and actually explain some of that because I think a lot of people yeah. think they know, you know, what the legislative filibuster is, why it's there. They think they know what the role of the Senate is or should be. But there are a lot of misconceptions. I mean, you write about George Washington famously calling, although it may be apocryphal, the Senate the cooling saucer, and then the these questions about the filibuster. A lot of people who think that actually it was something created by the founding fathers. So right. tell us some of that history and what some of those misconceptions were. Yep. So so I think, right. So this cooling, let's start with the cooling saucer metaphor, because I think this is something a lot of people associate with the filibuster. So interestingly, you know, that that is probably an apocryphal story. The story is that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was in Paris, which is true during the Constitutional Convention. So he comes back and he's sitting with George Washington and he's asking George Washington to explain to him why the Senate was created. You know, it, it was an interesting idea at the time to create a bicameral legislature. So, so Jefferson is asking why they did it this way. And according to the story, Washington says, uh, he points to his uh, saucer. And I guess at the time you would pour the tea into the saucer to let it cool before you drank it. And Washington said, we, create, we created the Senate for the same reason that you pour your tea into that saucer, it's to let it cool before you drink it. So it's a reasonably accurate description of the Senate. The, the story is probably apocryphal. The first time it appeared was in Harper's in, in the 1880s. So no one could have, at that time, could have had firsthand knowledge. So a hundred years later. A hundred years later, later <laughs> yeah. So, right. um, yeah, you know, so, it, but, but look, so let's just take it as a parable, at least. At least as a parable, it's relatively accurate in terms of capturing the purpose of the Senate. It was designed to be um, a place where, the sort of passions of the House of Representatives went to be cooled. But what's happened is that we've taken that idea and greatly inflated it to a degree that the framers never intended. And today, that, that idea of the cooling saucer and that idea of protecting the rights of the minority against the, against the threat of untrammeled majority rule has been dramatically inflated for the, a specific purpose, which is to give a minority, a numerical minority, and usually of conservative senators, 
not just a role in the process, but the ability to wield a veto over anything that happens in the government. So the filibuster is what has become the main tool of wielding that veto. The filibuster itself was not supposed to be a part of the Senate. We know that because the framers created the Senate as a majority rule body. And I just want to drive this point home because today we've come to accept that everything of substance needs, or everything of significance needs 60 votes to pass in the Senate. This is a very recent development. It's only in the past few decades that this has come to be the norm. But even the ability to implement 60 votes as a threshold is a relatively new phenomenon. Not, so not just the fact that it's used commonly, but the fact that it exists at all as a possibility is relatively new. The Senate was a majority rule body for the first 200 years about of its existence. Every bill that came to the floor, there's a few, there are a few exceptions uh, enumerated in the Constitution, uh, such as you know amendments to the Constitution, removal from, from office under impeachment as we're seeing, treaties. Other than that though, every bill was supposed to be at a majority vote threshold. This was the way that, this was not just sort of the expectation, but this was actually the way the Senate operated from 1789 all the way up through the 1970s. Around 1917, there was a rule put on the books that started allowing you to put the 60 vote threshold in place. We can talk about that more in a second. But even when, once it was implemented in 1917, it was almost never used. I'm talking maybe once a year, but often never in a, in a two-year two session of Congress. But it was used, as you point out, and it evolved over time. And, you know, you have a fascinating chapter about the role of John Calhoun, you know, the uh, South Carolina senator and uh, arch slavery supporter. From that through the 20th century, where there were filibusters, usually to block civil rights legislation. Right, that's right. But they were real filibusters. People stood up and spoke for hours on end to delay passage and often did that successfully. That's right. And, and so, so this sort of underscores, though, how it was a majority rule body, because this was, an, this was something that happened rarely. And, and it was often used to block in, in Calhoun's day, it was used to you know, pr protect slavery. And then in the Jim Crow era, it was used to block civil rights bills. But you know, when Calhoun started to sort of innovate this, um, you know, there were individual examples of sort of people using obstruction. Historians differ over when exactly you would call you know, the first filibuster. But, but Calhoun, Calhoun started uh, innovating something that we would identify as the modern filibuster because he married obstructionism with this lofty principle that he was doing it in service of the defense of minority rights and the minority's right to unlimited speech in the Senate. But this was not what the framers wanted. They were very clear that every decision point within the system should be majority rule. Madison, you know, was the longest lived of the framers. He, he overlapped briefly with Calhoun. He died in the early 1830s and Calhoun came to the Senate in 1832. So there was a brief period where Madison was able to sort of respond to some of the stuff that Calhoun was doing in his letters, and he made very clear that he did that Calhoun was taking the idea of minority rights far beyond what Madison had ever intended. But even once Calhoun started innovating this, this what we would describe as the talking filibuster, like you were saying, Mike, that standing on the floor for hours, even as he was doing this, all you could do was delay. Eventually, the filibusters had to give up purely out of stamina. So this was new and it was radical, and people at the time were sort of horrified by it because it was obstructionism like the Senate had never seen. But what they were horrified by was still something that was relatively mild compared to what we have today, because all they could do was delay for a time, and they always, they almost always yielded to the majority. So, so all through the 19th century, as Calhoun was, was innovating this, and then he died in 1850, and other people started taking on the tradition, still, the, the maximum they were able to do is delay bills. And it wasn't until the Jim Crow era that Southerners started taking this rule that had been put on the books in 1917 and repurposing it into sort of a de facto supermajority threshold. But like you said, the only thing that they applied that supermajority threshold to for decades was civil rights. It takes a lot of motivation to drive innovation. And you know the only issue that, that supplied sufficient motivation was the maintenance of white supremacy and Jim Crow among these Southern Democrats. This was sort of their, their overarching purpose in being in public life was to maintain white supremacy and Jim Crow in the South. So you take the story forward and eventually the Senate becomes, as people say, 
the graveyard of legislation. So how did that happen and who is most responsible for it? And that was done through the legislative filibuster. Right, exactly. So, I mean, basically, you know, you, just to look at this Jim Crow era for a second, because you can sort of see the seeds of it there. During the Jim Crow era, from the end of Reconstruction to 1964, when they passed the first major civil rights bill, you had sort of two categories of legislation. Every so civil rights was forced to clear a supermajority threshold during this period. It was the only category of issue that the Senate forced to clear that supermajority threshold. That meant that none of the civil rights bills passed. There were a lot of them. We could have enacted civil rights bills decades before we actually did because they were passing the House by large margins, coming over to the Senate where they appeared to have majority support, and they had presidents of both parties who were on record saying they were ready to sign them. I'm talking about anti-lynching bills, bills to end poll taxes, and bills to end workplace And, and, and they had broad popular support. They had broad. So Gallup started polling anti-lynching bills in 1937, and they found public support at 72%, including majority support in the South. They polled anti anti-poll tax bills in, in the 40s, and they found 60% support. So this wasn't a case of the Senate. This is, you know, we're told that there's sort of this wisdom in the Senate's delay. And this is one of the myths I try to bust in the book, you know, that, that, we're, that this is the cooling saucer in action, right? That America wasn't ready for civil rights uh, until they passed in 1964. That sort of helps us get over how long it took. That's not true. America was ready for civil rights. I'm not saying America was, you know, that racism wasn't a huge issue and it was this enlightened country. But the fact is, the public was ready for anti-lynching laws and for anti-poll tax laws as early as the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And the Senate implemented the supermajority threshold and blocked those laws from passing. What's important to think about during this era is that every other issue still encountered majority threshold votes in the Senate. So this is the period when we, you know, built the middle class. This was the period of the post-war boom of the of the New Deal, of everything we associate with, you know, our our, our um, dynamic middle class. All the laws that we passed to create post-war America went through the Senate at a majority vote threshold. Only civil rights had to go through the track where they required a supermajority threshold. Fast forward to today, and what we've done is we've basically taken the track that we made civil rights go through and that caused them to be civil rights to be delayed for 87 years and we are now forcing every issue to go down that track of obstruction and but the difference is you don't have to speak for exactly. hours on the floor yes. how, how does it work just yes. you, you were there you were uh senate aide how does a filibuster actually yes. happen so this is why, I mean, this is why we're able to, to apply it to every issue, because it's easy to do now. It's like, you know, consumer ease of use, you know, consumer, consumer technology has come to the filibuster. You know, it was only part, part of the reason it was only applied to civil rights and Jim Crow is it was really hard to do. You had to, you had to coordinate a group of senators to go hold the floor. You know, you had to physically stand there for a long time. And you had to, you know, intimidate your colleagues through various means to get them to, to back off. The Southerners were very good at that because they controlled all the big committees and had a lot of ways to intimidate people. But it was really hard to pull off. Today, it's easy to raise the threshold for any bill to 60 votes. Literally, all you have to do is send an email. You don't even have to send it yourself as the senator. You can have a junior staffer in your office send an email to the cloakroom, which is sort of the nerve center. Each party has one just off the Senate floor. When you look at the Senate floor and you see senators going in and out of those doors on the side, two sets of doors, one leads to the Republican cloakroom and one leads to the Democratic cloakroom. That's sort of where they coordinate all the activity on the floor. So, you know, there's staff in that cloakroom. And before every, whenever there's a bill that might come to the floor, the cloakroom staff sends an email to every office in the caucus, and it's called a hotline. And it comes in your inbox and it's got capital letters and says hotline, you know, bill number S525 or whatever, you know, a bill to, you know, do whatever, do whatever it does. And, and that's a solicitation basically to saying, if anybody has an objection, tell us now. And every bill that comes to the floor now has somebody reply and say, I have an objection. And the simple act of replying to that email and just simply saying, my boss has an objection, my, my senator, that raises the threshold from a simple majority to 60 votes. And, and, this is and how, how transparent is that? I mean, does it's the not public transparent know? At all. Nope, nobody knows who, who is objecting. You know, you, the only way to know is, is for the senator to volunteer the information or to sort of have reporters, you know, ferret it out. And there's this, there's this very weird dynamic where it's actually in, in sort of the majority leader's interest to protect the secrecy if, if they choose to do so. 
it's hard to describe, but basically the, the powers of the majority leader are relatively weak. It's not like the house where you get voted into office and then you rule with an iron fist and you are, you know, sort of godlike in your stature because you control the rules committee in the house. In the Senate, it's all cooperation and you, you serve at the pleasure of your caucus. Um, and it's a much softer set of powers. And, you know, the, the ethic is that if someone is objecting, the leader can't out the person who's objecting if they don't want to be outed, because if they out one person, they're going to have to out everybody. You can't start, you know, only outing certain people out of retribution because senators within the Senate caucus are powerful. You don't want to make enemies that way. And, and anyway, it wouldn't really do any good because they can still object and force that, that threshold to go higher. It's, the reasons for this are, are really complicated. It was a, a layered series of, of procedural changes that happened in the 70s and 80s that basically were an attempt. The, the Senate's workload was growing dramatically as the size of the government was growing and managing the Senate floor was getting more and more difficult. So as the leader, it became to be in their interest to sort of get a heads up that someone was going to object or filibuster to a bill before they brought it to the floor. Because if they brought it to the floor and then the filibuster happened, that screwed up their whole plan. So that hotline originated from that of saying, hey, listen, if you're going to object to this bill, if you're going to filibuster it, let me know ahead of time. And I either won't bring it to the floor or I'll know that if I do bring it to the floor, I have to clear that 60 vote hurdle because that's what killed, that's what ends a filibuster. And, and over time, that became more common. It became common in the start in the 70s and 80s in terms of you know more than once or twice a year, but it still was was not the norm until the late 90s and, and 2000s. And then McConnell under Obama took it to an entirely different level and started applying it to literally every piece of business that came before the Senate. I didn't realize that even a staffer could uh, initiate a yep. filibuster with an email. Did you ever do one? Mm-mm, mm. No, because I worked for Reed. So we were the ones sending the email out asking. For right. <laughs> so let's let's talk about where we are today, because obviously this is a red hot issue in the Senate. There was a standoff between uh, Schumer and McConnell. You know, McConnell was demanding a uh, uh, a pledge that the Democrats, that Schumer and the Democrats would not get rid of the filibuster. Then he relented, but he said he had pretty firm commitments, and they both said this publicly from Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Cinema that they will not vote to eliminate the f- filibuster. So does that basically take it off the table no, for the I, Democrats in this session? I don't think it does. I mean, listen, you know, for under Senator Reid, it took about, and, and you'll remember this, Mike. I mean, it, it took five years of Republican obstruction for Reid to come around. I mean. In, in retrospect, Reed is the guy who went nuclear and, and all this stuff, but but he was actually on the record himself, very emphatically opposed to going nuclear for years. Including, as was Biden, by as, the way. as was Biden, as was Schumer. I mean, as were many yeah. many of the currently serving senators, some of whom have already already come around and changed their minds. But but I mean, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a mild position. In twenty third in January, of, you know, we went nuclear under Reed in November of twenty thirteen. And explain going nuclear. That was uh, yeah. So the going nuclear is is the action of changing the rules by a simple majority vote, which you can do because the sort of superseding principle in the Senate is that you know the, the Senate does make its own rules, and so when a majority of the chamber decides it wants to do something a certain way, that that is sort of the ultimate trump card in Senate rules. So no matter what rule is on the books, if this principle was established over time, but basically, you know if the body itself as represented in majority sort of underscoring the fact that majority rule is the is the fundamental principle here decides they want to change it they're allowed to change it so it's the reason mansion and cinema matter is that a majority of senators could decide tomorrow to get rid of the super super majority threshold so just to be clear it only takes a majority to get rid of the super majority but obviously to get a majority of democrats you would need mansion and cinema uh, to get to 50 and then you would have Vice President Harris cast the deciding vote. But Which if they're not willing to do it, then how do you it's a, um, it's, uh, how do you get rid of the filibuster? Yeah. So I mean, you know, I, I, I certainly you don't have the votes. They were. It does not appear that they have the votes right now. But but my point in in, in the Reid story was that Reid in January 2013 entered a, a on the record colloquy, trading speeches with McConnell on the Senate floor, declaring that he was never going to go nuclear. 
And then nine months later, he went nuclear. So, you know, the road to reform is paved with senators who've, who've been on both sides of this issue. But, but I mean, look, I, 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 their, their statements were emphatic. They said they weren't open to changing their minds. I'm, I'm not trying to ignore, you know, the words that are there on the record. But what I think is going to happen is that I think right now there's still sort of a perception that the nuclear option is something that the far left wants to do. And that by not going nuclear, Mansion and Cinema are standing against the passage of things like Medicare for all, you know, and far left priorities. But I think what's going to happen over the succeeding months is that it's going to become increasingly clear that, you know, they're not preventing the passage of Medicare for all by preserving the filibuster. By preserving the filibuster, they're going to be preventing the passage of anything at all, and including very centrist, middle of the road policies of the Biden agenda. And I don't think that's quite what they've bargained for with this position. And so let's say, you know, we, we start getting towards the summer, we're, we're going to do reconciliation and all that, it seems like, and they'll they'll exhaust what they're able to do through that process. We can talk about that if you want, but, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument right now that you can't, you can't do everything you need to do. You know, many, many key Biden priorities can't be done through reconciliation. And so sometime in the spring or summer, President Biden is going to have a big, enormous parts of his agenda get blocked by the filibuster. And so it's not going to be, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren coming to Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema saying, "Hey, can you can you ease up a little bit here?" It's going to be Joe Biden who will come to them and say, "We need you to to shift here because if you don't, the Biden agenda is going to be blocked." And that's bad for Joe Biden, and it's also bad for every Democrat who's up for re-election in 2022, including Kristen Cinema's colleague Mark Kelly in Arizona and all the other senators that who need to win for Democrats to maintain their majority. And while Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin uh, certainly like to be iconoclastic and independent, they are not going to stand up to their colleagues who are up in 2022 and tell them to go take a hike and have every Democrat on the ballot in 2022 suffer because they have decided to stand in the way of the Biden agenda. That's just not going to happen. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about Sinema and um, Manchin. It, you said they like to be independent and iconoclastic, but is what's their political calculation here? Don't they also maintain uh, maintain more leverage and influence, or why why are they standing in the way of eliminating the filibuster? Well, they, that's the thing is they actually have more leverage and influence once you get rid of the filibuster because if you get rid of the filibuster, you know they are the deciding votes on you know everything passes with 50, 51 votes. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are the deciding votes on literally every topic. So. You know, they can still block the passage of Medicare for all and the Green New Deal if they want to, because they can just not vote for it. And if they don't vote for it, those things don't pass because they can't get to 50 votes without them. So they still they still will wield a sort of veto power over over what gets passed. But there's diminishing returns for them if they defend the filibuster from just from a hard brass tax calculation, because basically nothing gets done. And if the filibuster stays in place, we're just gonna be sitting around staring at each other. Nothing's gonna be passing and you don't wield any leverage when nothing is happening. And so in order to sort of activate their leverage, they need to allow things to start passing. So you can, you can you know, bring home the bacon in a big way on the initial decision to not, I mean, to, to give, to shift on the filibuster itself. You know, I've seen people on Twitter joking that, you know, West Virginia is going to look like Wakanda by the time uh, Joe Manchin is done with it. I mean, look, that's that's good for West Virginia. I mean, that's, you know, in the Robert Byrd mold of bringing home the bacon. And so so there's that. And then, you know, there's there's a big amount you can leverage for that initial decision to, to change on the rules. And then there's every bill after that where you can continue to use your leverage to, to secure whatever priorities you, you are looking to secure. Politically, I think there's, there's also a difference there. Joe Manchin can afford to sort of tell the left to go, you know, take a hike and and invite a primary challenge. I think it's different for cinema. You know, she Manchin can credibly claim to be the only Democrat who can win in West Virginia, but cinema can't claim to be the only Democrat who can win in Arizona. And I don't think she can afford to sort of be a persona non grata to the to not just the left, but like normie Democrats as well, in the same way that, that Manchin can. And then ultimately, I think that Manchin just does, he's not going to, you know, he, he's not I'm actually sort of a mansion defender in a lot of ways. I think, and you guys follow baseball, but there's a stat, you know, wins above replacement. Like, what's your value above an average person? I think compared to other senators, you know, Manchin has some of the highest WAR uh, of any Senate Democrat. Measured by how? Because of you compare, it's it's who could win that seat, right? So like any other Democrat who could win that seat 
would probably be even more conservative than Joe Manchin. He's, he's a pretty reliable vote on a lot of economic issues. So, Adam, I want to let me just ask, um, how do you deal with the be careful what you wish for argument? Mm -hmm. Um, Harry Reid goes nuclear and then McConnell goes nuclear on Supreme Court nominations. If that hadn't happened, Democrats wouldn't have had to, you know, you know, maybe they would have been able to keep Brett Kavanaugh and, and the other nominees off the Supreme Court. And so, you know, it's fairly likely or reasonably likely that the Republicans will win back the Senate in 2022. Yeah. And I'll, I'll even go a step further and say that, you know, the, the Senate is by its very nature tilted to advantage Republicans. And so we're making it easier to pass things in a, in a body that is inherently tilted against us. So, but I have a couple of responses to that. I mean, look, the, with the McConnell thing, I, I am, you know, we, we can never know what would have happened under different circumstances, but I am 100% certain in my own mind that McConnell would have gone, nu- if we, if Democrats had not gone nuclear on judges, in 2013, McConnell would have gone nuclear on judges in 2017, almost immediately. And I think what's important to remember is that it didn't even, you know, people have said, well, if he had to do it on Kavanaugh, he wouldn't have had the votes, but he, he would never have waited that long because he would have gone nuclear the first time Democrats blocked any nominee going nuclear on, let, let's take Betsy DeVos, for example, right? She was, she barely passed. She was confirmed by, by one vote, I think in February or March of 2017. So when Dems filibustered Betsy DeVos, you know, if the if it had still been in place, she would have had needed 60 votes to pass. Dems would have filibustered Betsy DeVos. McConnell would have immediately gone nuclear. And when he went nuclear on DeVos, he would have set the threshold down to 50 for all nominees, including judges, which is exactly how Reid did it. But Adam, you got to admit, Reid made it a lot easier for McConnell to go nuclear. Having done it in 2013, McConnell just extended what Reid had done to cover Supreme Court nominees. Uh, well, that's nominees. true. But so, McConnell, it, you know, it, 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 it did not take much effort for him to do it. You know, it only took a few days when, when Gorsuch happened, when he did on Gorsuch. But but there's no question in my mind. I mean, you flip it around and, and consider the opposite possibility that McConnell you know, to, to argue they wouldn't have done it, you have to stipulate that McConnell would have allowed Democrats to filibuster all of Trump's cabinet nominees and all of his precious judicial nominees, including Supreme Court nominees uh, for 2017. And I, I think there's just zero chance of that happening. It may have taken him a little bit longer to get the votes to do it, but there's no way that McConnell lets Democrats filibuster um, his judicial nominees in 2017. He would have gotten the votes. So now there, there is a good government political argument for retaining some form of the, at least the legislative filibuster today. And that is in our polarized political environment, when one party is in control, these days usually by just a few seats, it can pass whatever it wants. And we saw that under Obama with Obamacare, passing purely with Democratic votes. When you have no bipartisan buy-in, you've got no buy-in from the other side, and then guess what? Next election comes along, or an, another election comes along, and the other party gets back in control, and they can undo everything that you've done because they had not bought into any of the legislation. You know, back in the day, Medicare, civil rights, you name it, the major progressive legislation over the years always did have bipartisan buy-in. Today, we don't have it. So you get rid of the the filibuster and it just becomes a tit for tat and no legislation is long lasting because it gets undone the next time the other guy gets in charge. So I have two responses to that. One is, you know, Obamacare didn't get undone. Republicans tried to undo it. They 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 eviscerated a lot of it and didn't enforce it and made it That's a lot right, weaker. but it, but it's still it's still kicking and you know their their big effort to repeal failed and it and it didn't fail because of the filibuster. Republicans used reconciliation to to do it and so they were able you know they were able to do and run around the filibuster and so they only needed a majority to repeal it and they couldn't get a majority. And I think part of what that shows, I mean a, a couple things, you know, one most other modern democracies uh, don't have a supermajority threshold at all. Um, they are majority rule, whether they're unicameral or bicameral, they're majority rule all the way through. I mean, Robert's Rules of Order, the basis for all legislative rules is majority rule all the way through. 
and you know they don't see this kind of of whiplash effect. It's just not something that happens very often. I think that um, the reason for that, you, you could just look at the effort to repeal Obamacare to see why that is, which is that it's not a good use of your political capital once you come into office to just spend legislative energy repealing things. I think the principal ways you do that tend to be through executive orders and other things like that. And that's just going to happen anyway. And it happened before the filibuster and it will continue to happen after the filibuster. But in terms of dedicating you know, your first 100 days in office legislatively to repealing what the other person did, is just usually not what you want to do. And when you try to do it, as Republicans did under Obamacare, you know, they wasted the first eight months in office in this futile effort. So I don't think anybody thinks that's a good use of time. The history shows that once you pass something and put it in place, it's much harder to undo. I think, you know, majority rule Senate will also allow you to design policy better. Obamacare would have been better designed and more effective and more popular if it had been passed under a majority rule system. There would have been a public option. Um, the benefits would have kicked in a lot faster. A lot of the things that they did as concessions to try to get to 60 votes made it worse designed as a policy. So I think that you know that's one of the things that was frustrating as Democrats is we were, we were forced to defend something that wasn't actually as good as what we wanted to pass. And some of those things were sort of intended to make it, you know, inefficient and bad and and not easy to use for consumers. So I think it's, you know, I, I'm of the philosophy that you campaign on something, uh, when you come into office, you should be you should be able to, if you can secure majorities in the House and Senate, you should be able to implement that policy and then see if the people like it. And if the people like it, they can vote to continue you in office. And if they don't like it, they can vote for your opponents. And maybe part of that is that they want your the opponents to undo some of the things you did. I mean, that's how that's how the system works. But if you pass good policy, if you pass good policy and it's popular, it's going to be hard to undo those things. And that's not going to happen. The other thing I would say is that I think that it, in terms of the, the tilt of the Senate, uh, part, part of the things that Democrats want to pass right now are things, you know, to, to sort of undo some of the unfair voter suppression and and tilt of the Senate towards Republicans, things like DC, DC and Puerto Rico statehood, things like a Voting Rights Act. Right now, we are playing on a playing field that is dramatically tilted in favor of Republicans. It's easier for Republicans to win elections because of voter suppression, and they have to win fewer elections to take control of the legislative structures like the Senate. Uh, and so I think we've got a two-year period here where we can try to tilt that playing field a little bit back towards even so that Democrats have more of a fighting chance to play on a fairer playing field. Um, I'm not saying you know, to do this to make it easier for Democrats to win elections. I'm saying that, that right now the playing field is dramatically tilted in Republicans' favor. Um, so all we're trying to do is make it a little bit fairer. I was just wondering whether there's ever been any discussion of, of something slightly less than eliminating the, the filibuster and taking the threshold down from 60 to, say, 52. So there's still an incentive to reach across the aisle, but it's not nearly as hard. Yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely, um, Senator Harkin had a had an idea that was similar to that. It was sort of a ratcheting down um, where it started at 60, and then after a certain period of time, it would, it would go down to 55, then to 50. I'm of the view that eventually you have to have a way for the majority to, to impose Closure and end debate, but I think that probably what we're what we're looking at here is is a period of of trying out different ideas and, and different approaches. Um, I'm also of the view that you need to maintain some version of the talking filibuster because I think that what what does make the Senate different from the House is the ability for the minority to always have the opportunity to make their voice heard in the process. You know, in the House, the minority gets maybe like an hour of debate per bill if the majority chooses to let them. In the Senate, the minority should have, you know, plenty of time. I'm talking days, weeks, you know, something on that scale, to try and persuade, you know, and, and use that time to per try to persuade people to come around to your your point of view. If you can't persuade people, at the end of the day, you have to have a way to get things done, and that, in my mind, should be a simple majority vote, which is what the framers intended. I also think that the way you the way you generate, you know, Mike, you mentioned Medicare. What's interesting about a lot of those policies is that you know the Senate was majority rule at that time, and so even though they, they came down and were recorded as bipartisan votes, usually what what, hap what tended to happen, and this is what happened on Medicare, was it was a dogfight to get to a majority. But once you got to the majority, then bipartisanship started to happen. The Bush tax cuts were another good example. The Democrats, I, I oppose those, but just as an example of how this phenomenon works, you know, the Democrats fought tooth and nail against those tax cuts. But once it was clear the Republicans had a majority to pass them, a bunch of Democrats jumped on board. And I think it went down with like 58, I mean, was recorded with 58 votes. So a lot of times what happens is you have that majority threshold and the opposition party will fight to make the, the proponents of a certain policy prove that they have a majority. And then once they get that majority, 
bipartisanship sort of springs forth. Um, and I think that that's, that is what you will see happen here. Right now, you, we have heavily incentivized obstruction. And we've heavily incentivized the ability of the party out of power to make the party in power look bad. But if we have the legislative gears start turning again, you know, I think the party out of power will start to say, well, well I can't block them. So maybe my choices are just to either sit on the sidelines and do nothing and have nothing to sell to my to tell my constituents I did with my time here. So since this thing is going to pass, maybe I should get on board and actually try to influence the policy uh, and actually try to participate in the process. I think that the, the getting the legislative gears turning again in this era of polarization is the best way to generate the conditions that will be conducive to, to bipartisanship. Okay, last question. As an old Senate hand, uh, we had the vote in the Senate this week on the impeachment, upcoming impeachment trial. 45 Republicans uh, voted that the whole procedure was unconstitutional because the president has already left office. Given that, it seems exceedingly unlikely that you could get to 67 to convict the president. And the headlines are going to be, after this impeachment trial is over, Trump acquitted. Now, given that, does it make sense to go forward? I think it does, because I think for, for history, I think you want a vote recorded on this. I think that you're right that it's, you know, it's never great to have Trump acquitted headlines, although I don't think that he, I mean, maybe he runs in 2024, but it's it's not like before where that has an immediate political benefit to Republicans. I suspect the story will be, you know, mixed. And, and I actually think that given the sort of the doubtlessness of his crimes, a lot of the focus will be on Republicans who voted to acquit him and, and the coverage will present them unfavorably. But but all that said, I think I think there's so much going on that it will be a, a relatively compartmentalized story, even if the headlines are not favorable. But all that said, as, as sort of a Senate hand, I would say that there's some things that you are more important to do for history. And I don't think there's going to be a big political cost to Democrats. And I think that you have to put Republicans on record here. Yeah, there, there may not be. Yeah, there may not be a big political cost for Democrats, but there is the risk that you embolden Trump and you actually make the likelihood that he sticks around and tries to come back even greater than uh, than it would yeah, otherwise but that's be. True. But, and, and I, I, but, but I guess I'm, if, if you're the leader, I think I think, you know, what, what you think in this sort of situation is, you know, may, maybe that happens. But I sort of have a, a higher order responsibility here, which is to this is this horrible thing happened. We have to hold people accountable. We have to put them on the record. I have the power to, to implement this accountability here. And that's what I'm going to do. And I think you sort of put, put one foot in front of the other and and um, and implement that accountability. Sure. Okay, I got one final question, which is a short one. Your bottom line prediction, while we know the Democrats control the Senate for the next two years, even by the slimmest of majorities, will the legislative filibuster be eliminated or not? Yes, I think it will. Especially yeah. <laughs> if everyone reads your book, right? Yes, which, <laughs> which is they should, which they should. Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy by Adam Gentleson. And we will hold Good. you to your Accountability is important. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thanks, Adam.